Hey, Rob Bradford here. I have set out on a mission with my good friends at FanDuel to prove what I have known for some time. Baseball isn't boring. Now I have a daily podcast to prove it with some of the most notable people in the baseball world screaming baseball isn't boring from the mountaintops or at least agreeing to come on our show. Players, managers, GMs, and yes, even the commissioner of baseball, Rob Manfred. It has been a constant wave of baseball's most powerful voices. So join the revolution. Subscribe and soak in baseball isn't boring. Listen on your Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. You'll be glad you did. Welcome to KCBS In-Depth, a discussion of one of the topics making news this week. This is KCBS In-Depth. Thank you for joining us on KCBS In-Depth. I'm Jane McMillan. In the wake of Hurricane Harvey, and as Houston faces a massive toxic cleanup, and with awareness of our own disaster vulnerabilities here in the Bay Area, we welcome this week a nationally known expert in public health, the health impacts of urban design and architecture, as well as environmental impacts on health, especially on children. Dr. Richard Jackson is a pediatrician and former chair of the American Academy of Pediatrics Committee on Environmental Health. Currently a professor at UCLA, he served at the highest level within California's public health system, working to reduce the obesity epidemic, to monitor pesticides and reduce their risks on farm workers and kids, and to prepare the state to deal with disease. Dr. Jackson also served 15 years at the Centers for Disease Control, where he established the National Asthma and Epidemiology and Control Program. He instituted the federal method of monitoring chemical levels in our population, And he also led the CDC in creating the National Pharmaceutical Stockpile, this in preparation for disaster. Dr. Richard Jackson has a unique background to talk with us about what Houston is facing with this cleanup effort and in reestablishing its communities, as well as looking at our own vulnerabilities here at home. Dr. Jackson, thanks so much for your time and bringing your expertise to in-depth. We appreciate it. It's a pleasure to be with you, Jane. Let's start with what we know about the situation on the ground with uh, in Houston in the area with Hurricane Harvey and its aftermath. This is an area, the Gulf area is constantly pounded by storms, but of course this is an incredibly unique one. But this is an area of low-lying land, uh, petrochemical, fossil fuel industry, swaths of poverty. What are the special health and public safety issues this area is going to be dealing with after this particular disaster? Jane, I haven't been, of course, to uh, Houston since the event. Uh, I, when I worked for CDC, I visited many, and we had the Refugee and International Group and Emergency Response at my center. Uh, in the short term, the thing that's most important is actually search and rescue, uh, getting people out of danger, uh, families, children that are isolated, um, getting them into decent kinds of shelter with um, especially clean water and then food and then sanitation. Um, The clean water is essential. That's how epidemics start. If people are drinking contaminated and dirty water, when you look at that coffee-colored water in Houston, you can imagine. Second thing is that sanitation is really important. And if suddenly a place that is designed, let's say a gymnasium can hold 300 people comfortably, and now you have 900 to actually have adequate sanitation, toilet facilities, wash-up facilities, diapers, things like this. They're not exciting, but they're terribly important for the quality of people's lives. After that, you begin to worry about what happens when you cluster a lot of people together. Respiratory things. Infections move quickly when people are very close together. And so 
uh, one of the things we talk about, and I talk about with disasters, that disasters take fragilities that we have as individuals and that we have as a society, and they amplify them. So if I have lung disease, and all of a sudden I now have to get out of an abandoned or endangered house, and I'm in a setting where I can't get my medicines or an oxygen inhaler or something else, I'm really in much graver a danger. But as a society, if you're poor, if you're disabled, if you're mentally ill, you are much more uh, vulnerable as well in that society. So poor neighborhoods always get hurt more than wealthy ones. And I can talk about Katrina later. Well, and speaking of Katrina, and, and please do, um, so many of the poor that were displaced from New Orleans ended up in the Houston area. And these could be the same poorer communities that are now at risk after or impacted after Harvey. And so if you if you could talk for a moment about how a disruption of that magnitude in a person's life, especially a child's life, their education, or somebody with health issues because they're poorer, what kind of a setback that is? And then if we're looking at two, two of these incidents in some people's lives in the Houston area. You know, I... I think about how difficult it is, for example, with Hurricane Katrina. You know, if you're wealthy, if you had a good-sized SUV, if you had a country home or you had relatives 50 miles, 100 miles away, you could get out of town and maybe you'd lose the house, but you'd bring the family pictures and the things that are really important. If you're poor, you're stuck, and most of those people were stuck. Houston, to their credit, was very generous and very supportive, as were some of the big industries in Texas, too, the so-called diaspora, the people that were getting out of Katrina land. And many, I think the number is 25 to 50,000 people ended up staying in the Houston area after they moved there. Again, if you're poor, you know, wealthy people don't want to live in low-lying land. You can look at the flood maps just as well as anyone. If you're poor, those are the homes that are available to you. They're less attractive and they're often much less costly. So for a lot of reasons, they end up in, again, very vulnerable neighborhoods and areas. But there's one more thing I want to say about the poor, which is often the neighborhoods, you look at New Orleans, those poor neighborhoods had a lot of social capital, a wonderful history of music, of religious groups, of coming together. And that, just like all kinds of capital, once you lose it, building it back up is very, very hard. And the social capital, the social glue, it's very difficult to rebuild. And communities that have good social capital, where people know each other and care about each other, recover more quickly than those that have really lost it. Is, is it an organizational thing, or is it that internal feeling of connection that allows us to be more altruistic with each other? What is that what you mean by social capital? Um, there are technical terms, but it's basically uh, the level that people know and care about each other. And it takes years to build up. Oh, you knew my mother. And oh, you took care of my uncle when he was sick. Uh, and even going to the barbershop and knowing the people there uh, every two weeks. Over time, you really care. And there's very good evidence the communities that have strong social capital recover more quickly. You have that social glue. Now, there is very good evidence of social glue, the so-called Cajun Navy. And you look at these pictures, they almost bring tears to your eyes of Strong young men and women picking up people and families and three feet of water and putting them in boats and getting them out of there and helping them with the pets. And that kind of social capital, that reaching out to the community and to your neighbors and friends, who you don't even know in many cases, is so important. 
The problem is, it's not enough. This is a city of 7 million people, the fourth largest city in the United States. And ultimately, when things go this bad, this big, and you need help from the outside, you have to have substantial governmental intervention. The government can't sit back and say, take care of it yourself. And I'm very upset when I saw that there was proposed reductions in the Federal Emergency Management Administration two month, two weeks ago. I don't know what's going to happen with that. I doubt it will go forward. And I doubt that the 20 members of the Texas Congress who voted against aid for Superstorm Sandy in New York will vote against aid for Hurricane Harvey. Well, this is where politics starts to meddle. And, and there's been a concerted effort I would say mostly on the right to talk about that government is bad when, in fact, we are the government and government uh, as an overall umbrella and coordination and source of uh, resources is exactly what's needed, especially in a disaster. People get down on their luck. My own dad died when I was three of polio and my mother, we grew up poor. And um, Thank goodness for the VA benefits and Social Security, and, and she was going out and working, eventually remarried. And I had help in college. I, they didn't call them Pell Grants then, but there, there was support going through school. And I think we've made it very hard for poor people in our society today. And I know, I'm a professor at UCLA, I know school kids that have huge amounts of debt. Everybody knows it. And I don't know how they're going to pay it off, and they cannot go bankrupt. And so starting out your life burdened with a lot of debt, um, probably not having the social connections. You now have a degree, but trying to get settled in our society is much harder than it was 40 years ago. You write in some of your work about um, a narrative of survival in uh, large incidents like Harvey, uh, a terrorism attack, or whatever it might be. What do you mean by a narrative of survival? You know, we human beings have existed with stories that were around long before TV, radio, and Facebook. And it's how we understand the world. And every child clamors for a story at, at a very young age. And it's important that our storytellers, who can be everywhere from the president of the United States down to uh, the local preacher to uh, parents, talk about the, the importance of being resilient, of, of taking care of each other, of life and your obligations are bigger than yourself. And how do we talk about recovery in a community sense? A classic example of recovery is this great city of San Francisco. 1906, it was virtually leveled, a couple thousand deaths, and it was rebuilt within three years. Now, admittedly, it was a wealthy city to start with, but there was a vision of making a greater city to make it better than it was. And I think healthier than it was. They were worried about looting. I'll tell one more flood story because it's relevant. If you go to visit Sacramento, the old homes are all 10, 12 steps up from the street level. And it's a lot like the old Dutch when they built in New York. They called it a stoop because in Holland, no one would dream of living on the ground level. You wanted to be 12 feet off the ground. And that was what they did in Sacramento because Sacramento had horrific floods. And, you know, they put dams in place, but more than a few times in the last 50 years, we've worried if they was dams would hold with heavy rains. Um, so you really have to build for that kind of uh, survival. And again, it's a narrative of planning for the future for everyone, not just the wealthy. 
well, what about then areas that are prone to let's let's talk about flooding to start with, and uh, we can talk about our own area and what what our weaknesses are uh, in a few minutes. But if we're looking at Harvey and Houston and the Gulf Coast. Um, there's been a lot of discussion about the lack of building regulations, where homes can be built, how homes can be built, the location of concentration of the petrochemical and fossil fuel industries. And that comes down to politics and local zoning and federal grants and all kinds of things. So when we look at the cleanup of Houston and the redevelopment, are there just some areas that either should not re- be redeveloped and rehabilitated? Um, re-inhabited, um, or, or are there things that should be put into place by the government to help this narrative of survival? Regulations are also protections. When I was at CDC, I, during Hurricane Floyd, I spent uh, a week or so in North Carolina following the floods and visiting the shelters, visiting some of the homes. Uh, a couple quick stories. One is people underestimate just how important the original trauma issues are. By trauma, I mean getting hurt physically from the work of what's going on. Obviously drowning, but also um, puncture wounds are very common. People are walking around in sneakers and stepping on a a rusty, dirty nail in there, and that's not trivial. You have to take care of that very aggressively. Um, I visited homes that the mold within three days in that heat of that time, my eyes were watering, my nose was twitching, and I almost started wheezing. I had to get out of there. And the people that were cleaning out the homes, it was heartbreaking because they were throwing out family heirlooms and books and uh, the furniture, of course, and the sheetrock, and they're probably going to keep the basic studs of the house uh, together. When I went into the uh, evacuation centers, and people really took very good care of each other in these centers, but the fundamental sanitation there, and I remember the FEMA people coming in and saying, and a man saying, I need to rebuild my house. And he said, where is it? I said, no, I'm not, I can't give you money to rebuild there. It's too low. It's going to flood again. You've got to move over there. The other quick big ones in North Carolina, and it's true, if you've got a lot of septic systems, those fail. And all the stuff that's in that septic system ponds up. They've got a lot of huge chicken and other kinds of farms where a lot of animal waste is, is kept, and that all washed into the local waters. So the public health issues really became dramatic very, very quickly. It is not appropriate to have people build in harm's way. And I'm very unhappy that a couple of states have actually made it illegal in a real estate transaction to tell people whether they're in harm's way from climate change. I would venture to guess that almost anybody near the coast is in some type of, or or of any water area would be in harm's way due to climate change. Is that correct or no? There's some big high-risk areas. I mean, that whole Gulf Coast. I gave a big talk in Corpus Christi about a year ago. It's pretty flat, and it's flat all the way to Houston and well beyond. So water, you know, only a one-foot or two-foot sea level rise, and they've already had about um, a half to one-foot. We've all had one-foot sea level rise in the last century. By the way, um, that whole area around Houston has sunk about 10 feet it has subsided. The ground has subsided about 10 feet over the last century because of extraction of oil and groundwater. So you've got this double whammy of the ground getting lower and the uh, water getting higher. So I, you know, as they think about rebuilding, they're going to have to think about genuine plans for reconstruction. I'm just saying it. Good regulation. I'm not talking about all regulation. Good, thoughtful regulation that's put together by smart people and reconciling costs and all the rest protects people. It doesn't hurt people. 
If you're just joining us on KCBS In-Depth, my guest is Dr. Richard Jackson. He's a pediatrician, UCLA professor, expert in public health, including environmental impacts on health and health impacts of urban design and architecture. We're talking about Harvey and rebounding from disaster. I'm Jane McMillan. Let's take a look at what we might be facing in our area and, and our urban design and our infrastructure and our ability to have a narrative of survival. So obviously earthquakes are the first thing we think about, but we've got, we've just come out of a wretched drought. Um, There could be a terrorist attack, Um, you know, mudslides, uh, tsunami, water shortage. You know, we could, we could. Everybody's gonna turn off the show if you keep it up. I know, the list is long, (laughs) but folks, we're all still here, right? And we're. Uh, aside from a hideously hot weekend, we're, we're probably all doing really pretty well. Uh, but where are the chinks in the armor here in the Bay Area if y- if we're talking about your social capital and a narrative of survival? We've got a vast inequality issue in this area. Uh, does that impact what you would call social capital, our ability to know each other and have strong roots? It's a very transient area, too, especially in Silicon Valley. I was a medical student here. I went to graduated in 1973 from UCSF, and um, you rarely saw a homeless person in San Francisco. And one of my rotations was working in the mental hospital up in, I think it was Yonville. And um, those people got good care. They were fed. It wasn't lavish, but it was reasonable care for people. But we've made it so difficult for people that are poor, bankrupt perhaps for medical reasons or for mental health reasons in our society. We've made it very difficult, and they're going to be the most vulnerable. In terms of climate, um, you know, sea level rise is number one, and there are people know where they live, but if you're within one or two feet of the, of the bay, and I can think of Bay Farm Island and parts of Alameda and other areas, those are going to be very vulnerable, and they're probably going to have to look at seawalls very, very quickly. Oakland Airport, only a foot or two above uh, the bay. So, and they had to redo um, the uh, on ramp for the Bay Bridge on the base Oakland side because, you know, they need to look 50 years out. Actually, there's a theme underneath this 50 years out. We got to stop building for the next five to 10 years. We've got to start thinking long range. The way our grandparents thought about the long range is they built those huge water systems and roadways and airports and invested in infrastructure. And we've basically starved our infrastructure in a disastrous way. The one, I teach at UCLA, I I hate it, but the two most boring topics of conversation in LA are first, the expense of housing, the cost of housing, just like here. And the second one is the traffic, just like here. And the way we're building isn't working anymore. Just thinking we're going to kindle everything with cars when the cars are barely moving. That is uh, an issue that was under discussion in Houston, you know, uh, kind of Monday morning quarterbacking. Why weren't people told to evacuate? Because the roads out would be clogged. I mean, on a, th- on a Thursday getaway or a Friday getaway of a long holiday weekend here, you can barely get out <laughs> in, in all honesty. And so um, that is another part of what you talked about uh, in, in some of your work. Uh, you had a PBS uh, presentation and, and discussed the need for good communication, good coordination. What do you think we have in terms of that here in the Bay Area with the high congestion, with so many different governmental entities, and with 
quite a big financial uh, wealth inequality. How would we be able to survive? And are we in good shape for surviving a major disaster here? Two words come to mind. One is evacuation. The other is communication. So I'll jump at both of them. I don't know how Houston could evacuate 7 million people. Um, Mm -hmm. I think the reality that people have to shelter in place. And the way we dealt with this 100 years ago is we built good, solid schools and civic buildings that were places, they they are places of refuge when the disaster occurs. And you want them in the center of town. You want them on higher land. You want them to be rugged to the environment, whether it's a tornado or an earthquake or anything else. And we have really starved a lot of our civic buildings in a a long-term sense of really building for for people in the long term. Um, So evacuation, I was talking to a friend of mine. He said, oh, I went up to see the eclipse, the total eclipse. It was great. I said, is it better than 96%? It was a totally different experience. And he said, what was the problem? He goes, it took me eight hours to go the 10 miles leaving the place I was in up in Oregon Mm -hmm. because it couldn't even handle 10,000 cars. I don't know what you'd do in in, uh, Houston with 7 million people looking for a place to go. Um, the second big thing is is construction. I just want to jump on that. Um, when I, I remember in med school, there was a show, it may have been on CBS, which was um, The City That Waits to Die. And San Francisco, it was about San Francisco. And we had all these cornices in the buildings. A lot, a lot of them were not stone, uh, steel reinforced. And we have spent a lot of money both fixing our old buildings, uh, but also um, any new building takes longer to build here than it would in uh, somewhere else because you really have to build for earthquake standards. When the earthquake occurred in Haiti a few years ago, a quarter of a million people died. It was because there were no building standards. The same size earthquake occurred in Japan and there were less than 100 deaths. The same magnitude, Richter magnitude. So you can build for safety. And I think we also need to build not just for safety. By the way, a roof on a house needs to stay on a house during a hurricane because if that thing blows off and if you have no building standards and they're not making sure that roof is fastened and solid, that becomes a 10,000-pound projectile flying down the street in a neighborhood, and you don't want to be around that. And by the next six homes are knocked out as well. So the building standards are critical. I'm not saying slow it down. In fact, we absolutely need more housing in the Bay Area. I think everyone agrees with that. And not just um, upper-end housing, but good workforce housing, teachers, police officers, et cetera, and, and housing for the poor and folks that need that as well. And the more diverse we are, the stronger we are because everybody in the same income strata means there's nobody doing the real work. Houston obviously has a much bigger percentage of the fossil fuel industry, and it's got, the again, as I mentioned before, the petrochemical. Um, we have some refineries right here in our own backyard, and we've allowed building to get pretty close, homes to get pretty close. Uh, what are your thoughts about proximity, about precautions, about who's responsible for what precautions uh, in the event of a disaster here? And also, gosh, when you look at the mop-up, and the environmental issue in Houston. Talking about the Bay Area, and this happens near any major plant, happened in Bhopal. The people that work there, the poor people, want to live right close to where they're working because it's easy to get back and forth to work. And a cyclone fence is not going to stop toxic chemicals from blowing off the place. And there have been a number of episodes in Richmond, California, where the Chevron plant has really upset their neighbors. And actually, in times, there have been lawsuits where people were hurt by it. Contra Costa County is probably the most advanced county in the nation in terms of uh, public protections because they have a number of the other ones along the Carquinez Strait and other refineries, et cetera. 
Refineries make a lot of money because it makes a lot of money selling uh, petro petroleum. And number two, they, in my opinion, they don't pay an adequate share of taxes. Under Proposition 13, everybody thought they were going to protect grandma from being taxed out of her home. But the truth is it applied to industries as well. So in Los Angeles, where I am, uh, the building, the Hollywood, I think it's the Decker Records, the old Decker Records building at Hollywood and Vine, pays virtually the same taxes now as they did in 1978. And a young couple trying to start a family for buying a bungalow was paying about the same amount. So the disparity in taxes means that government is often starved about the things they need to do most, such as security and education. So I'm hearing, if I can paraphrase for you, I'm hearing that we do need to invest more in uh, not privatization, not relying on private corporations, but to invest more in public safety, public infrastructure, and that regulations for building and that those are protections rather than regulations that, that should only be looked at as slowing things down. You know, I think we're, we need to really look at giving the red carpet to good kinds of building because we do need places for people to live. And right now, a lot of the time, uh, we give them a lot of red tape. And we ought to be looking at the overall benefits of what we're building. Is it more housing for poor people? Does it reduce congestion on the roads? Is it near transit? And rather than simply looking at, oh, these are the negatives, more dust, more noise, more this and that, more traffic. And just as in medicine, I am a physician, people, everything we do in medicine does some harm. And you want to optimize the benefits and, and make sure you're doing more good than harm, but you're looking at the long-term outcomes, not the short-term. And I think we need to look at that in, in terms of building. I'm going to say one last quick thing, if I could, about privatization. When it comes to national threat, Privatization doesn't work. Fundamental market forces fail. And on December 8th, 1941, when Pre President Roosevelt called the leaders of industry in, and I supposedly GM and Chrysler said, well, you know, how many cars, what do you want us to do? And he said, well, I want you to build tanks. And, All right, we'll make time for that. He said, no, no, you're not building any more cars. This is what we're going to do is fight this war. He made it very clear that this was the, and I think we are up, comparable to 1941 as we as I look at the threats related to two trillion gallons more water in the atmosphere of the continental United States because of the one and a half degree heating temperature the increase in levels of the ocean the increased violence of the atmosphere 10 years ago we had a god for unbelievable storm in New Orleans that we thought would be the worst that we could imagine five years ago we had one in New York that again was staggering and now we've got this one and I think we're in a whole new normal in terms of environmental and climatic threats on the United States. You know, uh, the huge um, floods in Paris about a year and a half ago um, and the scientists calculated that the contribution of climate shift to that was about 30%. And when you think about it, ordinary events, you know, oscillate back and forth and all you have to do is add another 30% energy or water to that moisture, to that ordinary uh, weather change, and all of a sudden you're in a real danger zone. It's a little like, I don't worry about you too much if you've got 101 fever, but if you've got 104, I'm going to worry about you. And we're at, uh, we're not any doctor that neglected the signs and symptoms of impending disaster in a patient the way my country is neglecting the signs and symptoms of I think, almost catastrophic impact on our country, they would be guilty of malpractice. 
Dr. Jackson, thank you. I think we can end it on that note. I appreciate very much your time and your expertise. Nice to be with you, Jane. My guest on KCBS In-Depth has been Dr. Richard Jackson, pediatrician, professor at UCLA, public health expert, formerly with the CDC and the California Department of Public Health. His focus is on healthy communities from infrastructure to safety and health regulations to those community ties that help in healing after disaster. Thank you so much for joining us. I'm Jane McMillan. You've just heard KCBS In-Depth, a news interview program, Sundays at 8.30 a.m. and 8.30 p.m. And now available for download at kcbs.com. For all news, 740 and FM 106.9, KCBS. Hey, Rob Bradford here. I have set out on a mission with my good friends at FanDuel to prove what I have known for some time. Baseball isn't boring. Now I have a daily podcast to prove it with some of the most notable people in the baseball world screaming baseball isn't boring from the mountaintops or at least agreeing to come on our show. Players, managers, GMs, and yes, even the commissioner of baseball, Rob Manfred. It has been a constant wave of baseball's most powerful voices. So join the revolution. Subscribe and soak in baseball isn't boring. Listen on your Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcast. You'll be glad you did.